Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, history of African-American uprisings from Watts to Ferguson, with Donna Merch. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Donna Merch, who is an uh, associate professor of history at Rutgers University. And uh, she uh, regularly writes in the popular press like the Washington Post, Jacobin, The Nation. She's also the author of uh, Living for the City, Migration, Education and the Rise of Black Panther Party in Auckland. Uh, hello Donna. Hello. Uh, thank you for being part of uh, this sort of complementing series of podcasts with uh, the, last, uh, the last two issues of the Phenomenalist magazine about carceral environments and uh, design and racism. Um, uh, this is the second conversation we're having in this series uh, in New York. Uh, and somehow it will uh, it will be a, a good dialogue with the next one, which will be with uh, Christina Hazelton and uh, Jordan Camp about policing. Um, and uh, but uh, as usual, um, I like to ask my guests what they're working on at this moment, so that it, it kind of starts the conversation on a on an easy <laughs> in an easy manner, and then we can kind of jump right into the topic. So. So I'm working on a couple of things. Right now I'm actually working on a piece on the criminalization of debt. Um, it's a short piece for Boston Review, and it was inspired by the arrest of um, a middle-aged African-American man in Houston by uh, federal marshals. And this became a big, big story because he was arrested, it was thought initially, for um, defaulting on student loan debt. And given that 40 million Americans have student loan debt, and it's the second largest source of debt, with mortgages being the first, this was big, big news. It turns out that he was actually being charged with contempt of court. But I'm writing about that. And I become very interested at the intersection of economics and criminalization and mass incarceration. So this is a little side piece that I'm working on. I'm also working on a longer book, um, tentatively called Crack in Los Angeles, Policing the Crisis and the War on Drugs. And it's about really the takeoff of the war on drugs and war on gangs in Los Angeles, which pioneered all these new forms of criminalization of black and brown youth. Well, I think that's perfect because that's, that's how I would like to start this conversation because um, uh, in the few pieces that I've read from, uh, that you've wrote, um, they start with, uh, uh, they start with uh, the very impressive revolt uh, of Ferguson in, um, in uh, the fall 2014. Uh, but you're trying to trace uh, to trace the history of the way um, uh, those uh, these revolts have been pol policed, and uh, one important date in those um, uh, in this history of, of uh, racist policing is uh, August 1965 and the Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles. Um, perhaps for a greater audience than the American one, would you would you mind telling us a little bit how this whole came about and in which context it happened because it, it quite happened in a particular context uh, in the history of uh, civil rights movement? So um, I think that we're entering a new period in the United States of mass mobilization against state violence and really this is our first 
major mobilization, I would say, since the mid-1960s. So a lot of us that are writing and thinking about and participating in the anti-state sanctioned violence movement are looking back to historical precedents. And this is where Watts is very important. So there's really um, a broad-based mobilization of the black population in the United States after World War II. And you really see the beginnings of the stirrings in the Southern Civil Rights Movement starting during World War II. Um, and it's with the passage of Brown versus the Board of Education that the formal civil rights movement takes off. And you see people trying to transform a court decision into real practices because the problem is implementation. So how do you implement desegregation? So people begin mobilizing around that in Montgomery, Alabama, and in cities and rural areas across the country. And so for 10 years, you see continuous movement, really from 1955 until 1965. And this is largely a fight for statutory equality, so trying to eliminate these legal forms of discrimination, including segregation and public conveyances, um, African-Americans being forced to use secondhand facilities, second-class facilities, um, essentially legal, it's a fight against legal Jim Crow. So in late July, you have the culmination of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, which is the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And you had the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So this represents really the culmination of, one could see, even a century-long fight that goes all the way back to the period after the Civil War, the first Reconstruction, to have African Americans have full citizenship rights. So that's really important. It's very recent that African Americans even have the statutory right to vote. That's really only about 50 years old. Um, even though there was a precedent for that in the 19th century. So at this moment that you see the culmination of this decades and decades long struggle for legal form, formal legal equality, uh, less than a week after it's signed into law um, in the rotunda where Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, you see this outbreak of mass rebellion and protest in Los Angeles. And this was a real surprise to everyone because it actually happens at a moment of political victory, especially for Southern black populations. But uh, the Watts Rebellion breaks out and it lasts six days and there are millions and millions of dollars, I think it's $40 million, um, of property destruction. And you have a scale of revolt that's so serious that the smoke rising into the air forced LAX to have to shut down. And you have this incredible, brutal response by the Los Angeles Police Department and other, other, um, other, other groups of, of Southern California law enforcement, including the California Highway Patrol and the Los Angeles County Sheriffs. So you have this real mass response to these forms of protest because it entailed a lot of property destruction. And you saw people targeting especially businesses that were considered predatory, so people attacking um, uh, the uh, stores that extended and sold things on credit. You had looting. Um, but what's interesting about it is historians have gone back and looked at it. And one of the debates is, was this a rebellion or was this a riot? And that debate is a very important one because people talked about the choice of term reflected a whole ideology about how people interpret mass protest. So a historian like Gerald Horn, uh, who wrote about the Watts Rebellion, called it 
first of all, a rebellion because he saw a pattern in the kinds of property that were attacked. So not all black businesses were attacked, businesses that, that lent on better terms and were not seen as predatory were not attacked, and most importantly, the Watts Tower, which is a beautiful modern, modernist um, architecture feature in Watts was untouched, even though the area around it was burned. So Gerald Horn and others use this to interpret the organized and conscious nature of the protest. Um, the lens that was used by the mainstream media to talk about Watts was that it was a riot, which means spontaneous, um, destructive, and irrational. So I think that Watts is important as an emblem of black protest and signifying that there are problems besides legal segregation. So I think particularly for today in 2016 and certainly in, in looking at Ferguson, Watts was about the anger that black populations outside the South felt when they were facing forms of de facto segregation. So discrimination in housing. Uh, Martin Luther King called Watts the most crowded place on earth. Um, uh, a segregated police department. So it's 98% black, but has a police force with only three black officers. So all white occupying police force. Um, you had incredibly high levels of unemployment. So all these kinds of questions of what Stokely Carmichael called institutional racism, structural racism, was manifest in Watts. And I was just in Watts, actually, for the 50th anniversary in August, and it was really, really wonderful. There was a celebration of the Watts Labor Community Action Center, and I really felt like that I was at the kind of epicenter of this genesis point for urban protest and also for the black power movement. So you have continuous urban rebellions from really starting in Birmingham in, 18, in 1963 and then stretching through the assassination of Martin Luther King in April 1968, which I think is the culmination following Watts. And the important thing about this is that hundreds of thousands of people participated in these protests. You know, it's very common in historical memory to focus always on charismatic leadership and the people that were interviewed at the time. So Martin Luther King is used to embody the Southern Civil Rights Movement, and Malcolm X is used to embody the Northern black radical struggle, black nationalism. But Malcolm X is killed in February 1964, six months before Watts. So... Well, first, it's a problem to focus only on single charismatic figures, usually male figures. But two, you know, the urban rebellions to me are really arguably the biggest force that, that demands change outside the South. And this was done by ordinary people. Um, it's, uh, it's very striking when hearing you speaking about uh, the mid-60s, how much we haven't really changed anything since uh, today. I mean, I was thinking about how the, the mass media have been covering the revolts of Baltimore and the state of emergencies that followed uh, in, um, in uh, the beginning of 2015. I mean, the, insisting on the insisting massively on the properties that had been destroyed rather than on the lives that had been lost. I mean, uh, in, uh, and, uh, and uh, lives that had been lost, uh, that been lost uh, through uh, police, police action. And... Um, But so if we if we go back to the to the mid '60s and um, in your work you're particularly interested in how um, it was also a sort of shift in the policing in the in the militarization of the police that we we clearly had a, a, a very very poignant look uh, uh, during the Ferguson revolt uh, with uh, with uh, the police operating with uh, tanks and. Uh, And uh, machine guns that were previously used in um, 
previously used in wars in, uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, but somehow, uh, you say at some point of your of your work that um, it's um, we've been maybe too much insisting on the fact of that the police was directly taking their weapon from from the army and not enough that the police itself had a long history of militarization of itself and that very much uh, starts after the the Watts Rebellion uh, in in 1967 in particular I think when uh, the SWAT SWAT were created could you could you maybe Tell us about this particular aspect of uh, policing in its in its historical shift. So, the response to Watts and something I didn't mention, which is important, is that the trigger for the Watts Rebellion was the arrest of a young man um, who had gone joyriding with his brother named Marquette Fry, and the police uh, manhandled him, stopped him, and his mother came out, saw what the police were doing, and it was reported by people that were there that the police manhandled his mother. Um, the rumor spread that his mother had been assaulted and arrested, but she wasn't arrested, but the, the police were very rough with them. and. A whole group of people saw this happening and then began to gather. So it starts with an incident of police brutality. And most of the urban rebellions, what's interesting about them is that every rebellion has a short and a long-term cause. So the short-term cause is the immediate catalytic spark was police killings or police violence. But the longer-term causes have to do with the things that we were talking about, you know, long-term grievances. So that's, to me, always one of the most interesting questions about when revolt occurs is why and how do we interpret the immediate events and the long-term events. The response of the LAPD to Watts was first to arrest four, between four and 5,000 people. So mass, mass arrests which is really quite remarkable. And Watts is you know, actually quite a small area in South Los Angeles, so these are huge numbers of people, and they're going door to door, searching people's houses, checking to see if they had quote-unquote looted goods. So you can imagine there's contestation over what has been looted or stolen and what has not. So this really was a form of mass criminalization, I would argue, of the black population. Interestingly enough, the next time that you see mass arrests are in uh, 1988, when you have uh, Daryl Gates declaring it the year of the war on gangs, and you have in one weekend um, almost 1,500 people being arrested. So that's very striking. So this, this movement towards a militarized uh, system of policing, and Daryl Gates at the time um, during the Watts Rebellion was, I think he was a lieutenant, and he was very close to his mentor, William Parker, who is, I think, maybe the most important chief in the modern period for instituting all kinds of racist and anti-leftist practices. Um, and so Daryl Gates uh, comes up with the idea of having a paramilitary unit that would be used in, in cases like Watts, where you have mass revolt. And if you read his autobiography, he, he, it's very interesting. He says very little about individual people or about black people at all or women, for that matter, of all colors. He really talks about this tide of disorder. So in that sense, I think there's a real kind of fascist um, aesthetic and element to it, that he literally represents these problems in abstract terms as a creeping tide of disorder and crime. So I think that that language of disorder is very important, and it's in response to a fear of disorder that you see a paramilitarized force being created. So the original members of SWAT were all former military veterans, every single one, most of them Vietnam veterans, some of them from the Korean War. And the idea, it was initially called the Strategic uh, Weapons Attack Team, um, 
which received a lot of criticism, and so they changed the name, but they kept the acronym SWAT. And the idea was to have this military commando force that could be deployed. One of the important things about this is that SWAT starts in Los Angeles, and then the idea is exported to other police departments. But there are other paramilitary units that are created afterwards. So you have um, a paramilitary unit called TRASH, was the acronym that was created, which was an anti-gang, anti-juvenile um, anti-juvenile delinquency um, commando team and then later you have um, uh, its its name has changed and it's turned into Crash so it was a insertion of a different vision of policing where you would use military hardware and you would try to hire wherever possible veterans and to really apply military tactics to um, domestic policing so I think that it's important to remember that because SWAT really became well-known in the 1980s during the war on drugs, but its origins really lie in this period after Watts, and the first time it's deployed is against the Southern, Cali- Southern California Black Panther Party in 1969. So in L.A., I would say it's one of the places where you have some of the worst police repression in the three large cities in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Those are the areas that you see um, that are attacked, I think, most brutally. Um, the areas, they're the areas where the black, local Black Panther parties are attacked most brutally. So um, while a lot of the focus on militarization of policing uh, used 9-11 as the context, you know, kind of the securitization industry and the passage of the Patriot Act, I would go back earlier, really, to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you mentioned this uh, military hardware that is being used um, uh, following logics of uh, wars abroad into uh, domestic, uh, domestic uh, policing. Um, I'm also interested to maybe make the hypothesis that it goes both ways and the fact that uh, somehow domestically you're able to almost experiment weapons and experiment tactics and... and And somehow the the way the police have been informing also the military is, uh, I mean, that's something that uh, uh, we see uh, all the time happening uh, in the case of the Israeli army and uh, the way they're able to, uh, and the way you see uh, uh, in um, uh, weaponry salon, how how they're able to to brag about the fact that their weapons have been uh, tested on site with, uh, uh, obviously, uh, to the to the expense of, uh, of the Palestinian people. Um, is there a particular aspect of, uh, of this thing, uh, of, of this re- reciprocity in the context of, uh, of the United States? Um, we know uh, Jeremy Kuzmarov has written a very good book about this called Modernizing Repression, and he would be a great person to talk about it. You know, I'm largely focused on domestic U.S., but certainly we see... Um, in the last 10 years, this cross-fertilization between both not only domestic policing but also prison guards in being being involved in some of the torture scandals that happened in Abu Ghraib. So I think that there is this um, cross-fertilization between the two. And the, le- the language that was used in really post-Vietnam um, was often invoking Vietnam and the Americans' um, colonial wars as a way to talk about domestic policing. So you have, for example, a um, group of prosecutors that call themselves the hard, the hardcore anti, is it the hardcore drug unit in the 1980s, 
who talked about, they use very much the language and even dress, sometimes dressing in flap jackets as if they were a, a commando force, um, that they use this language of saying this is Vietnam to talk about domestic prosecutions. But yes, I think that that relationship between what's going on abroad and the U.S., inside the U.S., there is this constant um, dialogue between the two. It's interesting because uh, you, you read the same thing about the French police uh, still referring today to the uh, to having lost Algeria but not losing the rest of it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a current, uh, recurrent uh, uh, ter terminology, I suppose. Um, I'm really interested in, in talking about the various dimensions of... Um, Uh, criminalization in general in in, uh, in the context of st structural racism in the U.S. and uh, so this involved quite a quite a quite a few dimensions. But w one of them is uh, is uh, incarceration itself. But even before beforehand, the, the I think something that um, that struck me in um, in a text that I brought from you is how you define the um, sort of. Uh, How suspicion, uh, how racist uh, suspicion is also taking form, and uh, in the in the context of this uh, so-called war on drugs, and how you said, uh, and I quote, modes of dress, movement, color of shoelace, hand gesture, and mere association became defined as prosecutable offenses, and um, and so this is this is the first. Uh, Uh, step of this criminalization. I mean, we, we have the definition of, of, of uh, uh, there there is a sort of very dubious definition of who who is it that we want to criminalize to eventually uh, be incarcerated that we will talk right after right after right. It's uh, the the. the The suspicion itself is obviously heavily loaded with uh, with uh, those this structural racism uh, logics. Yeah. Well, that passage from my article was about something very specific, which is that, Los, as I mentioned, SWAT is pioneered in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles pioneers a number of repressive policing tactics. Another one are, is something called anti-gang injunctions. So the first one is issued in 1982, and these were developed by prosecutors who were really targeting black and brown youth. And the idea was that... Um, the idea... The idea was that, um, in particular neighborhoods, the LAPD saw itself as fighting a constant war against gangs. And they turned to civil injunctions, which were a way to target specific populations. But because they were civil, the state was not required to provide a public defender. So this was a very conscious and targeted form of ways to criminalize offenses that are, to ways to criminalize I shouldn't say offenses, to ways to criminalize behaviors that are constitutionally project, protected, but they were done through civil rather than criminal law so that's how they were able to do it, so the first gang anti-gang injunction is passed in 1982 and it was against um, using graffiti, the next one was passed in the late 80s and uh, it was implemented by James Hahn, who was the future mayor of Los Angeles Um, at the time, he was, uh, I think, district attorney or maybe maybe city attorney. And um, it was brought against a group of young people um, that they designated a gang called the Playboy Gangster Crips. And what a gang injunction is, essentially, is a permanent form of restraining order 
uh, against, I, and I quote, an unincorporated association. So that what that means is that you take this thing that you call a gang and you can add as a policeman anyone to that list that you want to. You don't have to inform the people that are being put on the gang injunction that they have been designated a member of a gang. And since it's a restraining order, there are particular behaviors that you can designate that people cannot engage in. One of the biggest one is the freedom of association. So in other words, you will be violating the gang injunction if you are seen with someone else who is listed inside this um, this in unincorporated association. And it's applied very, very broadly. So because police essentially determine who should be put on this list, things like wearing a red or blue bandana, um, wearing red or blue shoelaces or shoes, or waving at someone in a car when both of you are on the gang database were ways that they criminalized everyday behaviors. So one of the terrible things about this is it relied on the fact that people couldn't afford an attorney. So if, if you were to, they didn't have to disclose to people that they were on the gang, they were including the gang injunction. And should people find out, um, they could have fought this with a lawyer. So I would say there's a real form of class violence involved in it. One of the striking things is that um, white motorcycle gangs are very important in the history of Los Angeles, and they're actually very important to the, we'll call it, uh, informal economy of the drug trade. But it's not until later, I think that it's maybe in the 80s, but in the, uh, I'm not sure when it happens exactly, but initially white motorcycle gangs aren't included in the gang injunctions at all. They are later added. But what's really striking about it is when you look at these gang injunctions, and they're, hundred, they're over 100, they're just in Los Angeles alone. Um, they are almost overwhelmingly directed at black and Latino youth, and they are particularly, um, what can I say, uh, enforced and implemented in areas where you have um, non-white populations living adjacent to white populations. So many people today and the activists who fight against gang injunctions argue that they're also an aid to gentrification. Because what happens if your child is put on a gang database, then suddenly their everyday behaviors become criminal, and so families sometimes are forced to move so that their children are not violating the gang database. Um, they're not supposed to put children um, younger than 16, but I think that I've heard um, evidence of people as young as 9 being included. So in your work, you refer to uh, the term of carceral state, and you insist on how you insist on how important this particular terminology is for you, and and you might want to distinguish it from Angela Davis Davis um, uh, notion of prison industrial complex. And could you could you maybe tell us why? Well, you know, it's we're in a very interesting moment in the United States, um, as I mentioned. Um, I think that. Um, I wouldn't call it a repetition of the 60s, but it rhymes and it evokes some of the same questions of political mobilization around race, inequality, and war. So um, because this is in the air, I think that it's expressing itself in multiple ways. And one of them is in the university. I think it's very interesting because there's been a parallel movement going on inside the university that parallels the kinds of actions that we're seeing in the streets. So Angela Davis, Ruthie Gilmore, and a series of other activists in 1998 sponsored um, a conference called Critical Resistance. And this was really the launching of a new generation of anti-prison activism uh, rooted in ideas of prison abolition 
abolition. And she coins the term of prison industrial complex, hearkening back to Eisenhower's choice of military industrial complex in the late 90s as a way to talk about the whole complex of industries and economic incentives that are parallel to the kinds of militarization that we see in U.S. foreign policy. So it's coined at a particular moment. It's also coined at a time when we're seeing the development and expansion of private prison companies, private companies, private correctional companies, and they're issuing uh, in the stock market. So I think that that's really important. Um, I see myself as part of a, a generation that comes after that a lot of us were getting our PhDs in early 2000, mid-2000, and post-9-11. And we came out of kind of social movement uh, studies, and many of us were either urban historians or social movement historians. My first book was about the Black Panther Party. And we were interested in trying to understand the fate of the movements of the 60s and 70s in the United States. And from very different points of study, different regional studies, many of us converged on the problem of state repression. So, and that state repression at all levels, you know, from the FBI and the CIA down to local police forces. So I think that there was a turn where especially in, the, in history, because I'm a historian, and it takes a different, has a different valence and a different kind of theoretical construct depending on which discipline you're talking about. But many of us uh, wanted to write about this, but we came to it not as top-down political historians, but really as bottom-up social movement historians. And so we moved to talking about apparatuses, apparatuses of state power because we were really, um, what would be the word, really disheartened to see kind of the systematic difficulties faced in in sustaining mass protest in the in the 70s. So the term carceral state is first used by Foucault in the 1970s as first coined by him in Discipline and Punish. And um, I think that it's been taken up by a group of U.S. scholars because we want to be able to write about something that's also called the punitive turn, which is the implementation of punishment not only through the apparatus of policing, courts, parole, and probation, uh, juvenile detention facilities and jails, but also through other arms of the state, very importantly, the transformation of the social welfare state. Now, of course, there had always been punitive mechanisms included in the social welfare state in the United States. Compared to Europe, we had a bifurcated system of social welfare in which African Americans were largely kept out, and this was done by when the New Deal um, is implemented under the under the Roosevelt administration by excluding domestic workers and agricultural workers from social security. So there were systematic ways that the segregationists in the South prevented African Americans from receiving the benefits of the social welfare state. So when I was talking about the urban rebellions of the 1960s, one of the major things that they're fighting for is the expansion of the New Deal welfare state to African Americans. So it's not only a question of political citizenship manifest in the right to vote, but of economic citizenship, of saying we too deserve to be included in the welfare state. Um, but one of the things that we begin to see is that you see real victories. The urban rebellions, they actually win real victories. Um, and for example, in California, the welfare rolls increased by a third by 1971. Ronald Reagan is elected governor in 1966 and runs on a platform about cutting the welfare rolls. So this question of race and economics is very important. And we begin to see as part of the backlash against these accomplishments, um, uh, uh, not only criminalization of black populations, but also increasingly punitive forms of surveillance um, and expansion of means testing. So 
Um, it's a long and complicated story, but the American welfare state was built on a male breadwinner ideal. And so in order for women to be eligible for to receive aid, you had to prove that there wasn't a man in the house. So um, this had always been true. But you see really um, punitive examples of means testing. You see the Department of Welfare implementing 1-800 numbers where you can report welfare fraud, where they were trying to get people to report on their neighbors. So these forms of surveillance that came from the state, but also creating structures of surveillance in which other people become implicated. So uh, the carceral state speaks to this very broad notion about ways that punishment has been inserted into governance. Um, I think a lot of us break with Foucault because of his understanding about um, really the focus on the body and the increasing internalization of forms of, of mechanisms of control, whereas in studying the United States, the trajectory is quite different. I mean, we have a system of convict leasing and debt peonage in the South up through the 1940s. We see enormous amounts of physical violence being directed, including our use of the death penalty. So we have a very different trajectory than you see in discipline and punish. But nevertheless, that very broad theoretical construct of being able to talk about the punishing state I think was very useful to us. Um, one, I think, issue that historians have with, for example, using military-industrial complex or prison-industrial complex is that when you begin to look at the origins of mass incarceration in the 1970s, it is almost entirely public. So that doesn't mean there aren't economic incentives, but it is not defined by private interests. It really is defined by public structures, and central to that is the role of race in electoral politics. <laughs> Uh, maybe as a final question, uh, we could talk about a little bit more about today, uh, which I know is uh, unorthodox for a historian, but <laughs> uh, this is quite an unorthodox podcast, so it should be okay. <laughs> um, would you would you mind telling us a little bit what you're observing uh, today in terms of uh, resistive movements and how they might evolve as well? I mean, obviously we have in mind the fact of uh, the very strong presence of female leaders, of queer leaders, of uh, sometimes transgender leaders. Uh, uh, I guess that's one aspect of it, but there might be more. I mean, could, could you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, for me, because I wrote a book on the Black Panther Party, it's really heartening to see this new movement of young people, and it is absolutely centered in young people, as were the Panthers. They were youth movement. In some ways, it skipped my generation. Um, so first I just want to say it's wonderful to see young people really rise up and fight back. And the reason that Ferguson really became famous is not because Michael Brown was killed there. There are Michael Browns all over the United States. It's because of the sustained resistance of young people who started literally the first day of protest on August 9th. They called day one. And then August 10th was day two. And they're still counting the days. So it was the organized resistance to what they were we're seeing and this, you know, uh, constant pressure being placed on the police and on the city council in Ferguson that really brought this to the attention of the world. And of course, it flowed first through Twitter and social media and then was picked up by the mainstream media. But even the animus that made that possible had to do really with the sophistication of the protesters. And I would disaggregate the protest in Ferguson from what people call black, the Black Lives Matter. Because really, Ferguson is like Watts. It's a place. And one of the interesting things about it, I went to Ferguson and spent a lot of time there while it was happening, is that these were poor and working class populations. A lot of people that had drug, had drug convictions and felony convictions. And I would describe them as um, you know, 
a lot of people with bad jobs. That's who was there. You know, a lot of young people with often two jobs without benefits. There were people that were from the Fight for 15 movement. And then there were people that were really shut out of the labor market almost entirely because of felony convictions. So this had a very, like, working-class base. And I think that's really important. Whereas Black Lives Matter grew out of three um, organizers, professional organizers, all of whom had not-for-profits, who came to Ferguson and helped to create networks to draw people from all over the country. And that dynamic of the combination of local protests with resources flowing in from the outside also helped to make Ferguson the big deal that it was. But I think that there's a real distinction about the social base because it's quite different. Um, That said, Ferguson was amazing. It was um, the role of young women and women of all ages in protest was really quite amazing. They were the most vocal, the most organized, and really formed the kind of organizing spine of a lot of these local groups. And that's true of everything from local protesters in Ferguson to the founding of Black Lives Matter. So I think it's very interesting because they often... um, uh, uh, invoke the Black Power Movement, and there's a lot of uh, invocation of the Black Panther Party. Asada taught me as an example of that. But um, I think that there are important differences. We, of course, did have a female head of the Black Panther Party, Elaine Brown, and women were very important in the party. But I do see a real generational difference, and explicitly there is an engagement with questions of gender and gender identity within this movement. So they're using it as an occasion to talk about state violence and in the process of doing that also talk about the constitution of their own identities. Um, This also reflects a generational shift, and I think that it's a little bit complicated because you have different kinds of groups that are involved in this movement. You have very, I'd say, explicitly anti-capitalist organizations like BYP 100 that have a very well-developed anti-capitalist ideology, but they combine it with uh, gender and gender identity, and it's a really a beautiful meshing of the two. I think that Black Lives Matter has been less engaged with questions of the market and, and anti-capitalism. Um, I think there's a little bit of a push right now because of some of the impetus that's coming from BYP 100 and other organizing groups to look more at questions of economics. Because I don't think that you can talk about state violence without talking about the economic dimensions. Because in addition to this criminalization of race, this is also a criminalization of poor and working class people. So you're seeing a real bifurcation in the African American community, I think, between upper middle class people and people that participate in the black leadership class and then poor and working class people. You know, there are ways in which I think today is worse than the 1960s because so many people have suffered felony convictions. They've been shut out of the mainstream economy. So you're not only talking about poverty, you're also talking about a level of criminalization, a real stripping of both political and economic citizenship. So the problems right now are very serious, but it's really exciting to see a new generation mobilize and mobilize in the way that, you know, it expresses it. Because I think every generation has a different way of expressing um, protest. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. We were recording in, uh, in Wood Park, uh, hence the atmospheric uh, <laughs> noise around us. Uh, the, it was not a, a military instructor we were hearing, just a, a sports coach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you so thank you so much, Donna, and good luck with your uh, new books that you were mentioning. Thank you, my pleasure.